morning, friends. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And now that we're here, we're in the first Sunday of Advent, some of you might be wondering, okay, I know we're in Advent, Thanksgiving's over, we just lit the Advent wreath. Why in the world did we just see here in that video talking about Adam and Eve? Isn't it, aren't we getting ready for Christmas? What does Adam and Eve have anything to do with this? Why are we, why are we talking about the Garden of Eden? Thanksgiving is over, it's time for us to focus on Christmas. What does the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, have anything to do with Christmas? Well, believe it or not, The Garden of Eden is actually where the Christmas story begins. Christmas does not begin in a manger. It began in a garden. And the Garden of Eden, where God first created the world, where we first read the opening pages in the Bible, the beginning of the Christmas story starts there. And that's actually why this series that we're going to be working through throughout the season of Advent is called Unexpected Places, because over the next four weeks, we're going to see how the Christmas story shows up in some of the most unexpected places in the scriptures. Many times we think, oh, you know, there's this tiny little few parts where we talk about the Christmas story in the Bible, but when we really step back and examine what Christmas is all about, you'll see that it is being hinted of and spoken of and whispered about and in some places bursting off the pages all throughout the scriptures, including the very beginning of Genesis 3. Now, as I said, this is our Advent series. And something that, this is just something you just got to learn. This is, this is, for some of us, it might be a little bit of a pet peeve. But did you know Advent is not the same as Christmas? Okay? So notice, when I talk about Advent, I'm talking about Advent, not Christmas. There are two different things. The season of Advent is a different season than Christmas. Advent is the season in which we prepare for what occurred on Christmas Day. We're preparing for Christmas. It's an intentional time, an intentional season where we are spiritually preparing ourselves for the coming of Jesus. We are spiritually preparing ourselves for the appearance and the coming of Jesus. And so if you've never actually thought of that before, if you've never realized that we are called by God to spiritually prepare for the coming of, of Christmas, then this series might be for you, a time for, a time for you to, to first ever, perhaps, say, you know what, I'm going to actually prepare myself, rather than just getting surprised, oh my gosh, Christmas is here, how did that happen all of a sudden, where did the time go? Be intentional about preparing yourself for the coming of Jesus. Now, as I said a moment ago, the story of Christmas began in a garden. And before we go to that garden, we're first going to go to our God in prayer. And so I just want to ask you to, to bow your heads as we go to God and ask God to speak through us through his word in this season of Advent. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you with our hearts open eager to hear what it is that you have to say to us today, God. And Lord, some of us, we've come this morning perhaps filled with with angst or anxiety, with the weariness of the season already. Perhaps some of us, we've come this morning with feelings of stress or frustration of what we had to endure over these last few days. Some of us, God, are here joyful, excited as to what is about to occur. And Lord, wherever it is that we might be going through, whatever burdens we might be carrying, I pray that as we hear your word spoken to us, that your word would speak directly to our hearts and fill us with the strength and the courage and the motivation and the hope that we also desperately need. Lord, may we find hope from your words. May they not just be lifeless, empty statements, but rather might they be 
the true living word of God that speaks hope to our hearts in the time of darkness. Prepare ourselves now, Lord, to hear your word afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, as we go to that garden, we find the story from Genesis chapter 3. And I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles or on your, uh, on your phones if you want to pull this up. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be t- taking a look at the first 15 verses. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible. So just go to the beginning and find chapter 3 as we hear this word from, from the, the scriptures. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Eve, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her, to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Well, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is God's word. There are a total of 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 1,189, and we just read number three. The third chapter in the entire Bible. It's very early. For some of you in your Bibles, it's maybe on the second page, if you're lucky, right? It's an early, early chapter in the Bible. And unfortunately, that's how long it takes for us human beings to screw things up. The third chapter into the entire story of the scriptures is when we human beings enter the scene and screw things up. But what we also just read is where we see the first glimmer of the good news of the gospel in the Bible, three chapters in. It's the first place where we see a struggle between good and evil. It's the first place where we see God 
have a, have a, a need to rescue his people, to rescue his, his creation from sin. Three chapters in. Three chapters in, we see a reason, we see a purpose, we see a need for Christmas. A need for God to come and be among us. And what is that purpose? That purpose is to destroy the work that the evil one has unleashed. Here's how John says it in 1 John. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Three chapters in, we see that work initiated and begun, and the work that God is now seeking to try to destroy occurring through Christmas. Now, in chapters 1 and 2, if we were to go back and read those earlier chapters, we're told about how God created the universe and called it good. How God is the creator of all things that are beautiful and delightful and enjoyable. How he made these first two human beings, Adam and Eve, and made them in his image. How they were created by God and were in perfect relationship with, with with one another. How they were in perfect relationship with God. How they were in perfect relationship with all of the things around them that God had created. God gave Adam and Eve everything in this garden as something that was meant to be a, a, a picture of perfection, if you will. And they were called to enjoy this beautiful world that God had created. But in the midst of that beautiful world that God had had, had made, he also gave Adam and Eve one command. He told them, look, you can eat from any tree that you want in this garden except for one. And this command that God gave them, it was a, a test of their trust. Will they trust in God's goodness to, and be obedient to this command? Will they be obedient to God as a, as a reflection of the fact that they really do trust him fully? And while that question kind of looms in the background, will we trust God? Will we obey God? As that question looms in the background, suddenly we're told about a serpent who just sort of sneaks into the picture. Now, the serpent is real, but he's not ordinary. And if you're reading the Bible for the first time, this part can be a little bit confusing, right? Like, where where did this come from? Wasn't this world good? Where where did this serpent just sort of, you know, slither on in out of nowhere? What's going on? Who is this serpent? And why in the world can he talk? But the more you read the Bible, the more you kind of dig into it, you'll, you'll, you'll see that there's a bigger bigger cosmic story happening beyond even what we just see in our own, you know, interactions. And we're told more about this serpent, more about his identity. In fact, the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 12, 9, actually tells us quite plainly a little bit more about the serpent. And in this verse, we're told that this great, about this, this great dragon being hurled down. And, and here, do you see that phrase? The ancient serpent, right, called the devil or Satan, leads the whole world astray, right? And we're, we're given this more clearer picture of who this serpent is. This serpent is the one whom is called Satan, the devil. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that this is Satan? What this means is this is the presence of evil. This is the pre- presence of all that is not good, all that is opposed to God's purposes. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are confronted with the existence of evil in the midst of a perfectly good, good world. Yes, it sounds strange, but here is the existence of evil revealing itself in the presence of God's good world. And, it's, and, and this is important. Evil is not just this abstract idea, okay? Evil is not something that 
professors and philosophers sit around in some ivory tower and talk about. Evil is this real force, this real power, this real entity that is actually seeking to try to accomplish things. And the Bible gives a name to this evil force. Its name is Satan. Now, Satan's primary goal is to hinder and, if possible, to destroy this good world that God created. The Satan wants to see this kingdom that God has set up overthrown. And in Genesis, in God's perfect and good world, Satan seeks to destroy this world, to, to ruin this good world, by destroying humanity's trust in God. The way in which God's good world and kingdom is destroyed is through the unraveling of, of, of our trust in who God is. Now notice, if you are listening attentively or following along, you'll notice that the serpent comes up to the woman, and what does the serpent do? He starts asking her questions. Very sneaky, very crafty, right? He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You can almost hear the intent, right? This isn't just an innocent question. Did God really say that? And Eve gives a response. She says, well, we may eat fruit from all of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, this is really interesting. So Eve gives this response to the serpent's question, but, but the response that Eve gives, she's actually wrong. Yeah, that's not actually what God said. Now, if you've still got your Bibles open, you know, flip back to chapter 2. And in verse 17 of chapter 2, we're told what God says. God act, what God really says to Adam and Eve is he says this, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stop. That's what God says. But Eve adds more to it. She says, well, God told us that we're not allowed to touch the tree. And what's going on here is that Eve is adding more to God's prohibition. She's trying to make it stronger. She doesn't actually, she, she doesn't actually fully, accurately describe what God says. She's trying to add more to it. And, and there's all kinds of interesting reasons why. But it's so fascinating that the moment that this happens, it's like the serpent has got her because she's slightly off cue as to what God had actually said. And the serpent has a foothold. The serpent is testing Eve tempting her to distrust God. And the loss of trust is the beginning of the end for any relationship, right? We know this. Any relationship that we have, if you want to see it fail, take away trust. And that's the serpent's goal here. If I can convince Eve that she can't fully trust God's intentions, God's goodness, God's purposes, then it's all going to fall apart. Well, how does he do it? He seeks to convince Eve that God is holding privileged information from them. Right? That's all it takes to lose trust, right? I've seen people's relationships fall apart because the one person thinks that the other person's hiding something on their phone. Keeping privileged information, and suddenly before you know it, trust begins to fall apart. God's keeping something from you, Eve. You know, if, he, if he really wanted you to be happy, if he really wanted you to be fulfilled, well, then he would let you do this, but he's not. He's keeping something awesome from you. You can't trust a God like that. He's giving you unfair boundaries here. 
Now, it's interesting that the way that the serpent goes after this with Eve is he bases this whole discussion, if you will, based on what Eve can see. He directs her attention to the things that she can see. That's the sense that he draws her to. Take a look at these verses. Verses 5 and 6. He first says this in verse 5. The serpent says, God knows that when you eat from it, your what will be opened? Your eyes will be opened. As if there's something that I can't see that God's hiding from me. Therefore, there's information that I can't see that it's not privy to me. But if I can eat this, then then I'll be able to see it. And what, is, what happens in verse 6? We're told that the woman did what with the fruit? She saw that the fruit was of the tree was good for food. Now earlier, here's why this matters. Earlier, the question of whether or not Adam and Eve were going to trust God was not necessarily based on sight. It was based on listen, listening. They heard God's command. They heard God's command, and the question was, will they obey it? The serpent goes after what she sees and convinces her that the sight of the fruit is more appealing than what she heard God say. Do you see that? The serpent is trying to convince Eve that what she sees is more appealing than what she had heard from God. Now, interestingly, Eve is not even aware that this is happening. Eve is now listening to the serpent. She's using her ears to now hear what the serpent has to say, but the serpent has disguised it and manipulated her to think that it's all about sight. He's convinced her that if she will eat, she'll be smarter and wiser, that her eyes will be open, and she doesn't even recognize the fact that she's instead listening to the serpent as opposed to using her eyes. He's convinced her that if she doesn't eat, she'll be stupid and uninformed. He's convinced her that if she does eat, she'll be able to have the fullness of what God really is trying to keep from his creation. And so, she ate. Now notice, where was Adam this whole time? He wasn't taking a nap. He wasn't off naming animals. He wasn't watching football. You know where Adam was this whole time? Right there with her. Right there beside his wife. And what does he do about this whole situation? Nothing. He doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything, doesn't intervene. He's just along for the ride. He does absolutely nothing. She eats, he eats, doesn't question it at all. Eve listens to the serpent. Adam's listening to Eve, listening to the serpent. And no one is listening to God. Now we have to move to the part that we don't like. The consequences of not listening to God. The serpent makes this promise that if they would just eat the fruit and listen to him instead, that their eyes will be opened. And, and in this weird way, I mean, he's, he's not wrong. Their eyes are opened. He's giving them a half-truth. Satan loves half-truths. Because their eyes are indeed open, but it's not, they're not open to the things that, he had thought, that they thought. Instead, their eyes are opened to the awareness of just how guilty and shame-filled and broken they really are. Notice verse 7. The serpent promised that their eyes would be open, but how, what, are, what are their eyes open to? In verse 7, we're told their eyes were open and they realized they were naked. Oh, we thought we were going to be, have the knowledge of good and evil, that we were going to be full and aware of this world just like God is. But instead, nope, 
All our eyes are open to is just how broken we are. Our eyes are aware to the fact that we're naked. Suddenly, they see themselves in an entirely different light than they had before. They, I mean, they knew they were naked. It almost seems strange to make this statement, okay? Like, like, of course they were naked, okay? Like, this is a whole, this isn't a big other topic that we won't spend too much time on. But think about it. What's the significance of this statement? What is the significance of their eyes being opened suddenly to what it is? It's a symbol of their awareness of their guilt. The nakedness is this recognition that we are not as innocent as we thought we are, that we are actually radically broken, and it's all our fault. We've got no one, nowhere to go, right? Like when someone gets caught in telling a lie, or, or gets exposed that you really made a huge mistake, or everybody knows that you made a decision that was radically and incredibly selfish, and there's nowhere to go. Suddenly, when that happens, you feel like the whole world is seen right through you. You feel exposed. You feel vulnerable. You feel naked. And all you want to do in that moment is run away and hide. I want to get away from all of this. I don't want people to see me anymore. I don't want to have to talk to the people who who I've hurt or who I've harmed. I just want to get away from it all and hide. And what do Adam and Eve do? They run and hide. Now, sometimes my kids, they'll hide when they know that they did something wrong. (laughs) Just like Adam and Eve. Right? Even at a young age, we see kids doing this. Oh, no, I did something I'm not supposed to do. I'm going to go run and hide. And friends, I got to tell you this. Hiding never works. Hiding never works. And yet we, we keep trying to do it in all sorts of ways. We try to hide from the awareness of our sin, of our guilt, in all kinds of ways. You know, sometimes we try to hide by just telling more lies. We just try try trying to keep making the, you know, the, the, the ball of lies bigger and bigger so that people won't actually see what really happened. Sometimes we hide by trying to make it somebody else's fault. That's what Adam does. Sometimes we, we try to blame other people, right? Maybe if I, if I can divert their attention to see how it's somebody else's fault, then they're not going to be looking at me. Sometimes we try to hide through our addictions, we bury ourselves in alcohol. We, we get ourselves completely addicted to some other substance. We get addicted to something like porn. And we, we just get so distracted by these addictions that we just think to themselves, oh, we think to ourselves, well, it'll just all go away. I want to feel good for a little bit, so I'm just going to hide myself in this whatever addictive tendency or behavior. Sometimes we, we hide by distracting ourselves with all the things that were given as as. Western American people, we, we mindlessly stare at the television. We stare at our phones, scrolling for hours on end. We turn on the news again and just listen to the same talking heads, distracting ourselves from actually facing the reality of what we've done or what we need to do. We get ourselves so focused on something else, hiding from the reality of our sin, ignoring the fact that we've messed up, that we're broken, that we're insecure, that we're hurting, that we are in the wrong. We refuse to acknowledge that we're sinners. In essence, we've listened to the serpent. Now, why are we so reluctant to just talk to God about this? Why, do we, why is our initial reaction to always run and hide? And I think, honestly, we, we can see the answer in Adam and Eve as well. I, I think it's true for us all. I think the reason why we're always so reluctant to go to God, to, 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 to trust God with our brokenness and our mistakes, is I think deep down, I think we're afraid. I think we are so, so afraid. 
And some of us are afraid of people even finding out that we're afraid. It's embarrassing. It's difficult. It's humiliating to have to admit that we're afraid, that we've messed up. Some of us are even afraid of how God might react. The reality is that God longs for us and wants us to face those fears and talk openly about our sins with him. But we we don't need to fear that God's going to belittle us. We don't need to fear that God is going to humiliate us. That's not why God wants us. Some of us have have grown up in homes or grown up in churches where we we are told or or we saw or whatever, that we thought that if we were honest about what it is that we're really struggling with, that God's going to immediately just strike us dead or kick us out of the congregation or kick us out of the church. And we have this deep fear that we can't actually be truthful with what we're struggling with or what we're afraid of with God. But God is not here to belittle you. God is not here to humiliate you. God is here to help you. He wants to expose the mistake so that he might remove it. He wants to reveal your brokenness so that he might redeem it. He wants you to know that you are forgiven, but in order to be forgiven, you have to admit what it was that was done. And so God calls out to Adam and Eve. They're hiding somewhere in the garden, thinking that God won't be able to find them. And we hear the voice of God in verse 9. We hear the voice of God say, Where are you? Now, many people have pointed this out. Many, you know, ancient church fathers have seen this as well. God knows where they are. God doesn't have to ask the question. He created the garden. He knows where where everything is. God doesn't have to ask this question. He knows where Adam and Eve are. So why does he ask the question? He asks the question because he's giving Adam and Eve an opportunity to own it. He's giving them an opportunity to come forward. And they do. And when they do, God, he expresses righteous judgment with unstoppable love. He loves them even though they disobeyed him. The judgment and the consequences of their disobedience are real, and yet God never gives up on them. And what happens next is we hear the first glimmer of a coming Savior. You ready? Because God then turns to the serpents. I don't know where the serpent's been all this time, but God turns to the serpent, and we hear the first glimmer of Christmas in the scriptures. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. You will try to strike his heel. What God is doing right here is he is staring down evil and he is drawing the battle lines. The great cosmic battle has begun. God makes this chilling promise. He looks at the serpent and he says, one day... A a woman's offspring will arise to crush your head. Notice, not a man's offspring, but a woman's 
offspring. Someone born of a woman will rise to crush the serpent's head. And the serpent, in the process, will strike this offspring's heel. This is the conflict that then underlies the entire Bible. God's work of destroying evil, of sending an offspring who will strike the head of the serpent. And the Bible begins to move us forward. Moves us forward to this future coming offspring. Who is it going to be? Where are they going to come from? What are they going to accomplish? How are they going to strike evil once and for all? And yet throughout the Bible, what we also see time after time again is evil, is Satan constantly trying to also prevent that from happening. Trying to fight against God and constantly deceive and manipulate and, and his people, leading them to not trust in him, leading them to disobey him. Over and over again, this great cosmic battle is taking place between God and evil. And as you read the Bible, you begin to discover that while Satan continues to seem to win over and over and over again, time and time again, constantly people keep failing, people keep disobeying, people keep falling victim to the serpent's manipulation and, and deceiving and temptations, but that God is still somehow working through it all. And when we move to the New Testament, we turn to the opening pages of the New Testament of our Bibles and we're immediately told that there is someone who is about to be born who is the offspring of a woman. And that woman's name is Mary. And she has a son. And his name is Jesus. And you can begin reading the New Testament and you find yourself thinking, could it be? Could he, this baby boy, be the one who's going to somehow strike the serpent's heel? Could this child that everyone keeps flocking to and saying, this is, the, this is the one who has come, could he be the one that God is saying is going to strike the serpent and rescue the world? Could the time have come? One of Jesus' followers would reflect on this, and in Galatians 4, Paul would write, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Whereas Adam and Eve failed in the garden, we see this baby boy grow up and overcome temptation in another garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus refuses to give up on the plan, refuses to listen to the serpent, refuses to listen to Satan, and instead is obedient to God unto the point of death, even death on a cross. And there the serpent attempts to strike the heel of this man, attempts to strike the heel of this offspring, but he is also then crushed. Where Jesus on the cross, promises to simultaneously restore the world to its rightful place while at the same time crushing evil once and for all. A place so that one day we all might be able to move back into that promised heavenly garden where there is no sorrow, no cancer, no death. A place of beauty, a place of intimacy, a place of wholeness. Friends, the story of Christmas is a story of God rectifying the world. The story of Christmas is a story of God coming to redeem the broken world that we all screwed up and also a story of God seeking to fully and utterly, once and for all, crushing evil. Matthew 1.21 says this, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their 
sins. I want to close by taking a look at a fascinating painting. And the painting is called Mary Consoles Eve. And friends, if you can't see it, you know, I encourage you to pull out your phones. If you can't quite see it well up on the screens, pull this up. If you're watching at home online, Google this right now. Look up this painting, Mary Consoles Eve by Grace Remington. Mary Consoles Eve. And just glance at this painting for a moment. Study it. In this painting, what we see is we see the story of Christmas beginning in a garden all at once. On the surface, we see two women. And I love this, all of the incredible symbolisms in this picture. The first time I saw this painting was roughly 10 years ago. And I remember being so affected by it. I couldn't let it go. I, I kept a copy of it actually in all of my you know, random drawers and whatnot because in, occasionally I'd pull it out and I would just study it as a sense of comfort and reminder to me as to what it is that God has done in my life. You'll see in this painting, Eve, on the left-hand side, she's, she's forlorn. She's looking down at the ground. You can just sense the guilt. You can sense the shame. You see what she's holding in her right arm. She's clinging to an apple clinging to the brokenness, clinging to the disobedience, afraid to let it go, almost afraid that somebody's going to come and is going to take all that it is from her. You see down at her legs, there's a serpent wrapped around her leg, holding her captive, holding her victim. But then you see Mary takes her hand. And what does Mary do with her hand? Mary takes Eve's hands and she puts it on her womb. Do you feel the baby kicking Eve? Do you feel that which is growing? Do you feel the offspring preparing to come? And Eve has, or Mary has her other hand on Eve's face, directing her just to simply look down at the coming promise, the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, and then perhaps most powerful of all, look what Eve is doing with her foot. She is crushing the serpent's head. When I look at this picture, I just, it messes me up a little bit. Reflecting on how beautiful and how powerful it is that these two women represent the whole story of Christmas, the gospel itself coming of Christ that those of us who sometimes we feel more like Eve and we're trapped in our sin and we don't know where to go that there is a coming Messiah who has promised to set you free there is a coming Messiah who is going to release you from sin who is here to free you from captivity maybe you've been there listen to the promise that God has that he will crush the serpent's head. Advent is not about our goodness. It's not about getting things from others. It's not about spending money, decorating parties. Advent is not about putting all of the attention on ourselves and about 
what we want to do or what we want to accomplish. Advent is the story of how we, a broken people, are preparing ourselves for the coming of the birth of the promised Messiah. A Messiah who loves us in spite of our brokenness, who forgives us in spite of our disobedience, and who seeks to come and rescue us even though we just keep trying to run away from it all. Advent is about remembering that while Eve is clutching to her sin, just like you and I, there is a woman bringing forth a Messiah into this world to redeem us. Let's pray. Lord God, pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with such deep passion for you that even in the midst of our sin and our brokenness and our shame, that we would look to the promised coming of the Messiah, Jesus. For it is in there that we find hope. Lord, we praise you for crushing the serpent's head in our lives. May we praise you with such joy and thanksgiving because you, O oh God, are the one who makes a way in the midst of the brokenness of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.